If you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Those of you that are joining us, we had been preaching through the book of Revelation, and we are coming to the end of this great book in chapters 21 and 22. We're in the midst of a series on last looks at Jesus in 21 and 22. Now, there's an author and seminary president, and his name is Brian Chapel, and he said some years ago, he and his wife Kathy had gathered their kids. His wife Kathy and another friend of theirs gathered up all their kids, and they went to the St. Louis Zoo. And at the St. Louis Zoo, there was a new animal attraction called Big Cat Country, and it just opened. And evidently in Big Cat Country, this is probably several years ago, because I think this is kind of the norm today. If you go to our zoo, it's all open large enclosures and the animals run wild or they run semi-free, right? Not born free, but semi-free. I couldn't resist that. The, uh, the lions and the tigers that were in this particular cage was uh, obviously a, a wonderful attraction. The kids were anxious to see it, so they loaded up the kids and went to go see them. All week they were told they have a child that's three and five, and then the other mom had children that were young as well that they would be able to walk these skyways over these large enclosures and actually be able to look down on the big cats and see the tigers and the lions in their habitat and watch them again kind of roam with a little more freedom than the little boxes they used to be in several years ago. Now, while they were on the skyway walking over the big cat, uh, the blanket got tangled in one of the strollers. And so Kathy, uh, the mom went down and started pulling the blanket out of the stroller. But meanwhile, her three- and five-year-old boy continued to plow on ahead. And when she looked up next, they had plowed on ahead through a small opening in the uh, skyways in which you could literally walk through and onto a set of rocks inside the large enclosure of big cat country. And obviously, to her horror... She sees this and she hears her three and five year old turn around and call back and say, hey, mom, we could see him. We could see him. And they're pointing him out. Now, uh, she was horrified, but she didn't know what to do. I mean, what do you do? If she screams, she might startle the children and they might get a closer look than anyone wanted them to have and fall into the big cats. She was too big to fit through that child size gap in the fence that allowed them to get through and to get out on the rocks. So what does she do? So what she did is she got down on her knees, threw open her arms, and said, children, come give mommy a hug. And the boys turned, saw their mom's wide open embrace, and had known the love of their mom for many, many years, and came running to their mom's embrace. Running to her love. That's it. That's it. That is the book of Revelation. And that is what this passage is about. This passage God is actually calling to you with His arms wide open. And it's a loyal love that He's calling out to you. And it's that loyal love that's meant to actually melt you and turn you to run back towards Him. And run into his open arms. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. In your bulletin, you'll notice that we have what's called the prayer of illumination. And what the prayer of illumination presupposes is that we all need to be illumined. That we don't naturally bring eyes to see the realities that are in Scripture. It's not that there's a secret message that needs to be decoded, but it's that sin is so effective that it actually blinds and distorts our understanding. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what has been written. So let's ask Him to do that. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would open our eyes by the power of your Spirit to see you. That we would see your loyal love. Feel its passion. Know its presence. And so, oh Lord, give us great help. And in helping us, Lord, would you give us strength in our innermost being? Would you grant a deeper awareness that we're forgiven? Would you remind us that we're clothed in a righteousness that's not our own? Would we delight and rejoice in the inexhaustible fountain of your grace for us in Christ Jesus? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're looking at the last looks of Jesus, chapter 21 through 22. These are the last looks that we get of Jesus in all the Bible. So these are the last, obviously, two chapters of the Bible. And what we've recognized from the book of Revelation from beginning to end is that it's about seeing Jesus. Two major visions control the whole book. Vision number one, seen in chapter one, then seven letters to seven churches. Vision number two in chapter four and five, then the rest of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way to which we get this new vision of a second heavens and a second earth that's coming. So as, as complicated as Revelation seems at times, it really is very simple. It's a picture book about Jesus and him giving us a heavenly commentary of what is taking place in the heavenlies and in the earthly regions of the first heaven and the first earth 
and now in the second heavens and the second earth. All right, so that's what's taking place here. Now, it's designed to help move us forward to a real faith in God. That's what the book's designed for. It understands that the church at that particular time, the seven historical churches, and you and I that are gathered here today, that we live in a time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, which is called the time of tribulation. That there are tribulations at this time because we're not home yet. And so life moves backwards during this time. And this book is here to help us move forward, not in a myth of progress, but move forward in a real faith and a real trust in a God who loves us greatly. Amidst and even when our lives are moving backwards. Now life does move backwards and we know this because of verse 1 because we're still in the first heavens and the first earth. So life moves backwards. And because of that, we know that there is a sea that's still present. You know, notice that in the second heavens and the second earth, or the new heavens and the new earth, the sea passes away. But in the first one, it's still here. And remember the sea throughout Revelation and even through Old Testament, it's the deep, dark realm from which rebellion and chaos and misery and ruin emerge to ravage the earth. It's an incredible picture. Okay, so that's what's taking place there. But we know that this former things or the time on the first heavens and the first earth is where all the pain and the mourning down in verse four. All these things are still present. And that's why we need to move forward because life moves backwards. Now, we've had our first last look at what's called the loyal love of God. Now, the loyal love of God means that God's love is loyal. It's a covenant It's been used throughout the Old Testament on into the New Testament. And what that means is that God binds himself to you in love. Is that he has a people and he binds himself into a relationship with a sinner. But the cords of the binding, the cords of the covenant is a loyal love that will never let go. And that's the look we're looking at. And last week we saw that it's very passionate. Remember, we saw the picture of the the bride being adorned for the groom, and that that's how God sees you and sees me passionately. Well, today we're going to look at the presence of His loyal love. Next week we'll wrap up this particular section and looking at the promise of His loyal love in Easter. Okay, So today, let's look at the presence of God's loyal love, the presence of a binding love for you. Okay? All right, let's look at verse 3, and let's ask this question right away. Why do you think it's a loud voice? In verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. Why is it a loud voice? Why do you think it's a loud voice? Why wouldn't it be a, a still, quiet, soft voice? Why wouldn't it be a sarcastic voice? Why not a funny voice? Why a loud voice? Well, the original language unpacks the meaning of loud voice this way. I'm just going to read what exactly what it says. Quote, exceeding the normal standard of talking in intensity, volume, and largeness. Loud voice. Now, let's just say you and I are at one of those real cool coffee places in town that seem to be growing up all over the place, right? And it's where all the cool people go. So I don't know why you're going but I'm going. 
So we're going to the cool coffee places. You thought I was going to turn it the other way. Where cool music is in the background, cool people chatting all around, sitting in cool chairs at cool tables, drinking cool coffee drinks, right? And while we're having a conversation, I'm speaking in a loud voice. Let's just pretend that that's happening. Now, what would you be thinking and what would everybody else in the cool coffee place be thinking if I'm talking in this very loud voice? In other words, I'm exceeding the normal standard of talking in intensity, volume and largeness. (laughs) Well, some of us are probably thinking he's socially challenged, right? (laughs) You better watch it, brother. (laughs) Yeah. Some of us might be thinking he's raving mad. Mentally, maybe literally, he's angry. I'm angry at something, right? Others might be thinking that he's deaf. He's just not hearing, and I'm speaking louder because I'm not hearing, right? Others might be thinking that I'm severely lacking self-awareness, just not aware of how I'm coming across, right? But there could be another explanation. It could be that I am completely engaged or completely took over by the matter that I'm talking about. It could be that what I'm talking about has so completely marked me and cut me so deeply and so personally, me and the content got mixed up in the delivery. This loud voice is coming from the throne room of God. It's coming from the throne room of ultimate reality. And we've been tracking in this book in Revelation, and we know that the place of the throne room of God is ultimate reality, and it's the throne of the King of all heaven and earth. Remember our picture. The picture is the throne is pinning heaven and earth on the ground. And that the throne of God and the throne of the high king is the ultimate reality in which all the universe twists and turns and rotates around the throne of a sovereign king. And it's from this throne that this tremendous loud voice is calling out. Deeply marked, deeply cut by the matter and completely took over by the matter which it's saying. Verse 3, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What we get in this particular passage is that God is completely consumed with being near you. He's completely consumed with being near you. With being among you was dwelling with you. And it's marked him so deeply, it's cut him so personally, that it's an exceedingly loud voice, normal, above the standards of normal way of talking. He was your normal kindergarten boy. What's a normal kindergarten boy? Mud, messes, and mayhem, right? Probably in that order. Mud, messes, and mayhem. Well, during the drawing period at his school... He was thinking to himself, I'm going to draw my masterpiece during drawing time this week. And so as he whips out his crayons and his white piece of paper, and as the kindergarten teacher is moving amongst all the students, she, if she confessed, was 
pretty uh, intrigued about what this young boy would draw in his drawing time. So she walked by and she quickly sneaked a peek. And then she didn't recognize what was taking place. So she asked the boy, what are you drawing? And he said, a picture of God. And the kindergarten teacher smiled knowingly, knowing this child, and smiled because she wanted to encourage him, but also wanted him to hear some truth. And so she said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the young kindergarten boy laid down his crayon, looked her right in the eye, and said, they will when I'm finished. What's happening in, this, what's happening in this, this passage is that God is painting a picture of himself and he's coloring it in for you. And the picture that he wants you to get and the picture that he wants colored on your mind and colored on your heart is that I am near you. I am with you. What am I like? Do you want to know what I'm like? Nobody really knows what I'm like. Do you want to know what I'm like? Do you want to try to color me? Color me in this way. I am near you. And that matter consumes me. It has marked me from the beginning to the end. It's been the same theme. I will be your God and you will be my people. And he's basically saying to us in this loud voice, in this loud picture, he says, picture it. Paint it into your mind. Imprint it into your imagination. Practice it. Portray it. Think about it. Twist it into your thoughts. Work it into your life that I am with you and that I am near you. I think we need to get a little more picture of what that means and what that looks like. So I want us to get a couple pictures here. And this is what we're going to do. He's basically saying to you, I'm near you when you've realized you spent your whole life And most of your life, rejecting the goodness and grace of God. So here's some real specific application. He's saying, I'm near you to all of you who said, you know, I've spent most of my life rejecting the goodness and grace of God. And now I've come to the the time in my life and I wonder whether that grace has run out. Now, how many of you think that? And how many of you in here this morning, which there are several, I'm sure of in a crowd this large where you have spent your life and you have spinned your wheels and you've realized now that you've been rejecting the goodness and grace of God. And if you're honest, is there grace left for me now? Right? And then we go to verse 6 and we look at B. And he says, to the one who is thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And so now may you see this. Now may you see that that God gives grace without payment. And may you see that there is an inexhaustible, overflowing, abounding grace and no payment kind of grace. The only payment kind of grace is the payment of his son kind of grace. So the payment of his son, which is a a punishing death and a perfect life and a powerful resurrection. That's the only payment that brings the nearness of God to you. The only one. 
And so you come to this particular passage and you wonder if you're out of grace. And the answer is no, you're not out of grace. God's never out of grace. His presence is near to those who come with no payment in their hands but the payment of His Son. And when that happens, and you trust in His death, in His cross, and in His crown, you get the thief on the cross kind of grace. He wasted his whole life. He's hanging on a cross. He's got three minutes left before he goes into the other world. And his question is to Jesus, has the grace run out for me? And Jesus emphatically said, today you'll see me in paradise. What this passage does for us, if we get the loudness of it, is that there is no excuse for any sinner on the face of this planet until the last second when the heavens are torn and he comes down. There's more grace than you can even imagine. And you begin to imagine it when you begin to see the incredible largeness and loudness and volume of the payment of His Son. When we get a hold of that, we get real thirsty. I am near you when you've been slandered by the sticky web of gossip, right? You feel so betrayed and you feel so beaten up that you want to fight for your reputation and you want to Fight back and justify and defend yourself to these people or whoever's spinning their web of gossip about you. And God walks in, and this verse is true when He says, I am near you and I'm with you, even when you're slandered like that. God says, I'm near you and I'm near you in which way? Again, we go down to verse 6, and if we really get this fact that without payment, we begin to see that the payment of the cross has power and the payment of His resurrection or the crown has power. And so when you are at that time in which you are slandered, you're able to turn to the One. You're able to turn to the grace of this One who took all the payment. And so what happens is you get to the cross, and the cross actually has power in it. Because now that you've been slandered and you feel the betrayal and you feel the need to defend yourself, you turn to the cross and you recognize that at the cross you've been forgiven and at the cross is the power to actually forgive someone else. And also you get to the cross and you look at the crown that he's resurrected and you recognize that at the resurrection he sends his spirit. And because of the power of his spirit, he enables you and equips you to actually forgive the person or people. And to actually empower you to go forward with not growing in bitterness and not growing with fighting and arguing in your mind, having arguments to justify yourself and to lift yourself back up in the eyes of that person or those other people, right? You can be rest and secured that the worst thing has already been said about you because Jesus said you're a sinner. And you can be rest and secured that the best thing said about you is that He loves you. And because of the payment of His Son, you are forgiven you are accepted, and I'm working on you. And I'll work on you until I take you home, and then I'm finished, and you're perfect. No more work. Right?
So the call to those of you that have been sinned against this morning, maybe it's slander, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's outright something more terrible and heinous than that. The answer for you is still verse 6. Because there is no payment, His presence is loud in your life. And you can turn to Him even now and find forgiveness because you're a sinner. You can forgive because the cross is even bigger than the sin that was just done against you or the sins that are continually to come against you. Okay? And because of the crown and the resurrection, you have His Spirit to help you when you can't do it. When you can't forgive. And you can't go forward and get rid of the bitterness. Okay? All right, one more application here. I am near you, he's saying, when you've been embarrassed. Let's say you've been embarrassed by your own sin of prideful anger. This can be illustrated very beautifully on Friday night. Friday night, the Redeemer Blue team played a team that will remain nameless to protect the guilty. We lost, and after the game, I was steamy mad. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. As I looked around at my teammates, I was not alone. Now, we weren't steaming mad because we lost. If you've known us, we've lost many times before. If you've seen our play, we've gotten better, though. We have our best season going so far. And it wasn't the way we lost that bothered us or bothered me. It wasn't that we played our best, we did our hardest, we did what we could do. It was the way they won that bothered me. After the shenanigans that the pitcher was doing, whatever he was doing at the pitcher mound, I found myself back at third base again. And while I was at third base, I had this horrible thought come into my mind. And the thought was, what if one of these guys rounds third and on his way to get to home runs over my dad? And at this point, I wouldn't have put it past this team to do it. And then the next picture came into my mind. It was the front cover of the Waco Trib religion section. (laughs) It was this, quote, local pastor had to be peeled off opposing church league softball player. (laughs) Did you see the paper yesterday? It didn't happen. It could have happened. And the question is, is the sin of a pastor beyond God's nearness? Is it? If it's without payment, that's the only thing that can move me forward. If it's without payment, when I'm sitting that night, realizing that over and over again, I am churning and seething with anger. It's without payment that I am only able to move forward God to God and confess my sin and recognize that His pardon is enough and recognize that there's power in His Spirit now to help me forgive and to help me move on. And even if I did do it, to get over the embarrassment that it would bring to me and to you and to everybody. Right? 
I want you to don't not miss verse four. Let's look at verse four together. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I don't want you to miss this. Look how near he is to you. Look how near he is with you. It's an incredible personalness here, an incredible personal touch that he actually touches your tears. That's the the picture that's being communicated here again and over and over again. The passage here is about God being very near to you. And he's so near to you that you get to verse four that he reaches out and he actually personally engages you and touches your own tears and wipes them away and removes all the pain and removes all the former things. And yes, this is casting us forward to the day in which he delivers All of us from this present evil age. But it's an actual picture of how he engages you now in his nearness, that it's very, very close. And it's very, very personal. So personal, he touches a tear. That's how close he is. Now, his nearness is the given in the passage. The way in which he's near is dependent upon the need of his people. And the need of his people presupposes he has a very personal, real knowledge and understanding of you. And that he sees everything about your life and he has a perfect knowledge of your life. That If you look at the Psalms, there's a sense in which David cries out and he doesn't even know the cry of his own soul. There's that something's, something's going on. He's crying out in the Psalms and doesn't even, he can't even put a finger over what's going on inside his own soul. But his comfort was, you, oh God, see it. You, oh God, know it. You know me better than I know myself. Where can I go that your eyes don't see me, lay on me and see me completely and knowledgeably? And that's the kind of picture that's being painted here. He's so near and he's so close that he personally knows you enough to reach out and wipe off one of your tears. Now, it's the way in which his nearness is manifested in our life that might vary from person to person. So the first thing you do not want to do is is get yourself a cookie cutter diagnosis of when God is near, this is what it looks like. And when you get this, God is near, this is what it looks like, because this is the way it was for Sally, and this is the way it was for Jim, and this is the way it was for Jeff, and this is the way it was for our pastor, and this is the way it was. And then you take taking that way in which he personally engages each person according to what God sees and what God is doing in a person's life. And if you bring it over into your life and you try to make it fit, you're crushed. And so for some of us, he's very near in convicting of us of our sin. And for others of us, he's very near because we need extreme comfort. And for others of us, he's very near and that he's actually compelling us with a real love for him and for others and with new life and new obedience and the strength to persevere in certain situations. And for others of us, he's very near and he's instilling courage and he's saying, I am with you. Stand like a rock on me. But he's with us very differently. Okay? According to your need as he sees it, not necessarily 
the way you see it. Now, sometimes you see it and he sees it and you're in perfect sight. You read the scriptures and you begin to see what your real need is. And by reading the scriptures and seeing what your real need is, is because God has revealed what your real need is. And now he's near in that way. Okay. All right. Now, some of you that are tracking with me in this passage are thinking, too, this is the end of all things, though. I mean, the promise that we just looked at is when it's all wrapped up and we're all home and he's with us perfectly. You see him perfectly. All that's taking place. And what's running through your mind, if you're tracking with me, is that, of course, it's going to be like that at the end. Of course. I'm concerned about now. I'm concerned about getting on in this life. You start talking to me about that. Now, next week, you're going to have to come back because that's when we tackle that question. But I want to give you a little preview. And the preview is this. This isn't the first time he said those words. The words that are being said in that verse where he says, I will dwell with you. Those verbs and those words and the action of that nearness was said way back in Genesis and marched through Israel's history and marched through when they were devastated and divided and marched through when there were 400 silent years and marched through when Jesus stood and he says, I am with you now. And so next week we're going to look at the promise of his presence being with his people now and to come. So hang in there with me, okay? All right, let's end. Robert, our RUF intern at Baylor, sent me an email that Chelsea Pillsbury wrote to the broader church body. Those of you who might remember a couple of weeks ago, Chelsea uh, is an RUF intern with the Newsom's who we've sent out to New Mexico State. And she was engaged to another RUF intern uh, from Auburn. Or is it Alabama? Auburn or Alabama? Auburn? Well, uh, two weeks ago, she lost her fiancé. And it was because he took his own life. Now, here's some incredible highlights of this letter she sent out via email. I want you to listen in on what she said. This week I felt grief and pain as I have never felt before. I see the effects of the broken and fallen world that we live in. I have cried more tears than I have ever cried. My heart is broken and it's hurting. I have lost my best friend and the only man I ever loved. I know too that this hurt will never fully go away. There's no quick fix to make it end and there's no complete closure. Is a very wise woman. It would be easier for me to try to push away that my memories of Paul and begin to numb myself to the pain and loss. Yet I know this is not the solution. I was just as shocked as everyone else when I heard about Paul taking his own life. There was no indication that this would ever happen. No one I have talked to that was close to him can find any reasons either. Although I would love to have a specific answer to all my why questions, I know I will never fully understand. 
As strange as this sounds, I am content not to know. Myself, his family, and his friends all know that we cannot turn back the hands of time. We cannot beat ourselves over the head with the what-if questions as well. Our sovereign Lord has a plan, and that I will never fully grasp, but I trust him. In the midst of my deep pain, I find joy and hope in God's gracious blessings that he has showered on me. She writes when she was at the funeral, we sang Psalm 23, and when I sang the song, when I sang the line in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over, I turned to my sister and repeated those words, my cup runneth over, my cup of blessing runneth over. The importance of the church is more evident now than ever before. God knows that we need the body of believers to love and encourage us when we are in our darkest hours. Throughout this time of grief, there has been a steady peace within. I know this is not due to my own strength. I know it's not due to my own will to move on. I can only describe it as, quote, the peace that surpasses all understanding that's spoken of in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Even in our darkest hour, God equips us with this peace, end quote. You know what the end of that verse says? The peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Jesus. And that's the point. That's the nearness of God. And so, my friends, wherever you are this morning, Sinned against the sinner, wasting your life realizing that you don't know Jesus. You can move towards Him because He's near to sinners without payment. The only payment is trust His Son.